attention, we're beginning a new series today, aptly entitled Journey to Easter. Journey to Easter. It's a series all about the gospel, the good news of Jesus Christ, the good news of his The series is not going to cover all this, but it is the good news. The good news of his virgin birth. That God the Son took on a human nature in addition to his divine nature. That's the good news of his perfect life. That Jesus fully obeyed in all the ways we never could. It's the good news, as we will see, of his sacrificial death. That Jesus died as a substitute, bearing the judgment of God against our sins in our place. It's the good news, as we'll see, of his triumphant resurrection, that he is bodily, physically raised from the dead. That was not an illusion, an illusion or a mirage of some kind, that Jesus rose and is alive right now, showing that his payment for sin was more than sufficient. And it's the good news of his return to heaven, his current reign over all things, and his coming return, our great hope. That's the gospel, the good news of Jesus Christ. It's good news for all who turn to Christ and believe, all who repent from their sin, who turn from going their own way and turn to Jesus Christ and trust in, rely solely on what He's done for you to bring you to God. And if you've yet to turn to Christ and trust in Him, rely on Him like that, I want to urge you, even this morning, to do so. Pray as you're listening to my voice, you would Turn to this Jesus and rest and rely solely on what He's done for you to bring you to God Himself. This series is is about the heart of that good news, particularly His sacrificial death and His triumphant resurrection. But you might say, Tab, Tab, I already know about that good news. So what's the big deal? So what? That's a good question. And I think Dr. J.I. Packer provides a good answer. He, lis- he, he said the following, listen closely. Quote, We never move on from the gospel. We move on in the gospel. Did you catch that? We never want to move on from this good news. We want to move on in this good news. If you think... This good news is just old news. It's not relevant to my life anymore. It's not relevant to my day-to-day struggles and trials. It's not relevant to my difficulties. I need something more interesting, something more applicable. Please think again. We never move on from this gospel. You want to move on in this gospel, to move on in understanding it to move on in further appreciating it, to move on further in awe and wonder and worship at the God of this good news. That's that's what we want to have happen as we journey to Easter and celebrate what He's accomplished for you and me. We are just seeking to move on in the gospel. So we begin here in Matthew 26, It is the beginning of the passion narrative in Matthew's gospel, the the narrative of Jesus' suffering. 
Let's, let's unpack this section before us in three parts. Track with me in three parts. Let's call the first part the Savior's sacrifice. First, the Savior's sacrifice. Verse 1. When Jesus had finished all these sayings, He said to His disciples, You know that after two days the Passover is coming, and the Son of Man will be delivered up to be crucified. So it's the time of the Passover. The great feasts when the people commemorate when the nation was freed from slavery in Egypt under Moses. But at this Passover, notice what's going to happen. Jesus says, the Son of Man will be delivered up to be crucified. And he's referring to himself in this, in this enigmatic way, keeping his true identity hidden in a way, and yet also alluding in this Son of Man, to the great, divine, glorious figure in Daniel chapter 7. This, this figure who receives glory as he reigns over the nations. Here now Jesus reveals something startling. That Son of Man, that Son of Man must suffer before entering his glory. He he will be crucified. He will be crucified. And crucifixion was, was so shameful. They only, they only crucified slaves and the most base of criminals. You, you hung there naked publicly for days, bleeding profusely, beaten, limbs pierced until eventually, mercifully, you suffocated to death. It was the most shameful way to be executed. And now Jesus says, that great, glorious, divine figure, the Son of Man, will be handed over to be executed like that. And then we find the human means by which this sacrifice will take place. Verse 3. Verse 3, then the chief priests and the elders of the people gathered in the palace of the high priest whose name was Caiaphas and plotted together in order to arrest Jesus by stealth and kill him. But they said, not during the feast, lest there be an uproar among the people. The religious leaders, they want Jesus out of the way. He's just been causing too much trouble for some time now. The problem is Jerusalem is filled with worshipers for the Passover. And during the Passover, religious fervor is at its peak. People would be thinking about a possible Messiah, a possible deliverer. And some even thought that Jesus could be him. To seize Jesus in front of the crowds during this time could spark a riot. So no, they say. We've got to do this on the sly. We've got to do it by stealth and kill him. But before showing us how that actually takes place, before seeing how that actually unfolds, Matthew inserts very intentionally a very different response to Jesus. Let's call it, secondly, the extravagant devotion. That's taken from 
commentator R.T. France, his terminology, the extravagant devotion. Verse 6. Now when Jesus was at Bethany, close to Jerusalem, in the house of Simon the leper, a woman came up to him with an alabaster flask of very expensive ointment, and she poured it on his head as he reclined at table. So, so now we're in the town of Bethany, and we're transported to a party, one hosted by Simon the leper. How'd you like to have that nickname? Simon the leper in verse 6. Simon is obviously a leper no more, or he would have been quarantined. So Simon may very well have been one of the lepers that Jesus healed during his ministry. We don't know for sure, but he seems to be Simon the leper who is a leper no more, happily hosting Jesus in his home. And that's not the total guest list. The siblings, Mary, Martha, and Lazarus are all there because they too live in Bethany. Martha the famous servant extraordinaire is certainly making sure the party is, is catered to perfection. Everything in its right place. And Lazarus, whom Jesus raised from the dead, is regaling people with stories about his, what it's like to be dead. Tell us again, Lazarus. It's quite the occasion when something happens that changes the party entirely. An unnamed woman approaches in verse 7, and John, the gospel writer, informs us that it's Mary, sister of Martha and Lazarus. And Mary snaps the neck of an alabaster flask, a very, very expensive flask in its own right, containing a very expensive ointment made of pure Nard. nard. Nard was an extract imported from India. And notice, notice here in verse 7, Matthew wants us to see especially the value of this ointment, the, the price of this ointment. He says it's very expensive, very costly. We're told in Mark's gospel it was worth 300 denarii. That's a year's wage for a, a common worker. So in this little flask, is a whole year's salary. Can you imagine that? It's probably a, a family heirloom of some kind. It was probably a treasure passed from one generation to the next. It's likely the most valuable thing they own. Now, it, it was typical in a culture of this day that when you had a guest over, you would give them some oil to anoint their head but you would use the everyday stuff. You'd use the common oil. Not this unique, costly, expensive ointment, a, a year's salary. You would never do that. Yet Mary pours the entire contents on Jesus' head. And instead of being met with applause, she hears a stinging rebuke in verse 8. Verse 8, when the disciples saw it, they were indignant. They were beside themselves, saying, why this waste? What are you doing? For this could have been sold for a large sum and given to the poor. 
They, they rebuke her. They, they scold her. Don't you know the good that could have been done with that money? And Jesus comes to her rescue very quickly in verse 10. But Jesus, aware of this, verse 10, said to them, Why do you trouble the woman? Why do you bother her? For she, notice, she has done a beautiful thing to me. She, she has done a, a lovely thing to me, Jesus says. And then he gives us really two reasons why. Two reasons why her costly act, extravagant act of devotion is so beautiful in his eyes. Notice the first reason in verse 11. In verse 11 he says, For, here's the reason, For you always have the poor with you, but you will not always have me. Now Jesus is all for helping the poor. In fact, at the end of Matthew chapter 25, right before this, you find Jesus telling the parable of the sheep and the goats, where the sheep represent his people, the goats represent those who are not his people, and the, the way the sheep are distinguished from the goats is the way they showed compassion to those in need for Jesus' sake. So Jesus fully expects his people to help the poor and help the needy and the destitute. This passage is not a call to lack compassion. It's a call to recognize the unique, unrepeatable moment when God in the flesh is in the room. So Mary has prioritized rightly. She has right, rightly recognized the, the value and the worth of Jesus Christ. That's the first reason. The second reason, verse 12, he goes on. Furthermore, in pouring this ointment on my body, he says, she has done it to prepare me for burial. She's done it to prepare for my coming death. Now, we don't know exactly what Mary knew at this time. We don't know exactly what she was realizing was about to happen. We do know that she knows that Jesus rules over death. And she was there when her brother Lazarus was raised from the dead, brought out of the tomb after four days in it, when Jesus summoned him to come out in John chapter 11. She was there for that. She knows that. She knows that Jesus is the resurrection and the life as he taught in that moment. She knows what he said at that time, that all who believe in him will never truly die. And certainly she knows there have been threats against Jesus' life for a long time now. What she knew for certain we cannot say. But this much is certain. Jesus connects her costly, extravagant devotion with his imminent sacrifice. So this is a beautiful thing in his eyes to which he responds with a solemn promise in verse 13. Verse 13. Truly, 
Truly I say to you, I, I promise you, I guarantee you, you can bank on this. Wherever this gospel, this good news is proclaimed in the whole world, what she has done will also be told in memory of her. Quite the promise. It means Jesus knows that his death will lead to a resurrection. And his resurrection will lead to a worldwide movement of followers. And those followers will proclaim this good news about him to the nations. And as it's proclaimed to the nations, so will be remembered what Mary did in her costly, extravagant act of devotion. It will be told in memory of her. The idea there is like, it's like the Cabrillo statue over in Point Loma. You've been to that? I think it's perhaps the, one of the most beautiful views in San Diego. Cabrillo statue right there, Point Loma. Commemorating as a memory, a memorial to Cabrillo landing there somewhere near Point Loma. So Jesus says, she'll be remembered Mary be remembered always, not by a statue, but by her extravagant act recorded in Holy Scripture and told for generations wherever this good news is proclaimed. But that's not quite what's about to happen in Matthew's account. Because next, the anointing the anointing seems to lead directly to a grieving act of betrayal. So see thirdly, the grieving betrayal. Verse 14. Then, then one of the twelve, whose name was Judas Iscariot, went to the chief priests and said, What will you give me? What will you give me if I deliver him over to you? And they paid him 30 pieces of silver. And from that moment, he, Judas, sought an opportunity to betray him, Jesus. Remember, the religious leaders are trying to seize Jesus by stealth not stir up the crowds, when, when lo and behold, there's a knock at the door, and it's Judas, one of Jesus' inner circle. Judas, oh, Judas, come in, come in. We're so glad to see you. Oh, Judas, I know it's been hard these three years. I understand you're disillusioned. I understand he's not the kind of Messiah you thought he would be. Judas, we totally get it. We're with you, Judas. In fact, we'll make it worth your while. Yes, how about 30 pieces of silver? The price of a slave. Showing how little they esteem Jesus, but also showing how God esteems this event. For centuries prior in Zechariah chapter 11, God had his prophet Zechariah rejected for the same amount, the exact same amount as the rejected shepherd of his people. 
signifying the great shepherd being here right now, rejected once and for all, betrayed by a friend, delivered to be crucified, and yet not before, not before, Mary offers up this costly, extravagant act of devotion. So what's the point of all this? What's the point? I think I'd summarize it with one sentence like this. That the point is, the glory of Jesus' sacrifice for us rightly, it rightly calls for extravagant devotion from us. I think that's the point. The glory of this sacrifice, the God-man is making, the glory of Jesus' sacrifice for us, it calls for extravagant devotion from you and me. This this is how we can move not on from the gospel, but but move on in the gospel by, by seeing this to move on in this good news by realizing the glory, the glory of this sacrifice that it would birth from our hearts this kind of extravagant devotion we see. So let's think about both sides of that equation. Both sides. Beginning with the devotion side. Beginning with this extravagant devotion response. In verses 8 and 9, the disciples are indignant over what Mary does. What a waste, they say, right? Pure nard, what a waste. That could have helped so many. It sounds noble, but it has an implication to it, doesn't it? What a waste on him. Maybe unbeknownst to them, they're implying Jesus is not worth what you just did. I wonder if sometimes a similar thought can cross our minds. What, what a waste coming here this morning. Spending all this time on a Sunday morning. Do you know all the fun people are having in San Diego on a Sunday morning? What a waste. You're sitting in a community center. What a waste of, of, of time and energy on that ministry team serving Jesus' purposes. I was in the children's ministry. I was in the nursery. What a waste. What a waste of effort going to my home group, pursuing fellowship with Jesus' people, caring for each other, uh, people sharing their needs again and again. What a waste. What a waste of money giving to the purposes of the gospel. Do you know how much... How many other things I could be doing with that money? Do you, do, you know, do you know the chunk that is over time? Isn't that a waste? What a waste reaching out to those who don't yet know Jesus, showing them love, sharing with them this good news. Doesn't seem to matter sometimes. What a waste. Can't we all have that thought cross our minds? It's just a waste. And here... Mary reminds us, God reminds us, no, he's worth it. No, he's worthy. Mary could not but 
pour out the most extravagant act of devotion. And Mary today, she'd be called a religious fanatic, I'm pretty sure. Wouldn't she be? You're, you're on the extremes, Mary. You're starting to lose it, girl. I mean, you can have your Jesus if he helps you. If he's a crutch to get through life, that's fine. But don't take this to such extremes. Your devotion should be domesticated. Not so reckless, not, not so costly, not so sacrificial, not so extravagant. Next thing you know, you'll be going on the mission field or serving the poor for the sake of Jesus. That's what Mary would hear, but this is not religious fanaticism. Jesus teaches similar things elsewhere. I was reading in Luke's gospel this week. I was meditating on reading Luke 14. And struck by this verse where Jesus says, If anyone does not hate his father and mother and wife and children and brothers and sisters and even his own life, if you don't hate all those things, you cannot be his disciple, he says. That's odd. Because loving your neighbor as yourself is a second great commandment. So surely Jesus is not saying, hate your wife, hate your children. Hate your friends, hate your father, hate your mother, hate your own life, literally. No, he's using a figure of speech to say, you must be devoted to him above all those other good things. He's saying, we are to love him over all other genuine, legitimate loves. That's why Mary is at this the outset of this passion narrative. She is this statue, this cabrillo monument, <laughs> teaching disciples for generations. Here's what it looks like to respond to what's about to happen. Here, Grace Church, is a glorious, beautiful response in your journey to Easter these coming weeks. It speaks to me. I don't know about you. It speaks to me. I'm finding recently I get to do a lot of reading for my, my, my work, which I'm glad for. I'm finding that I am enjoying a lot about learning about God more than relating directly to God. I'm studying a lot about God more excitedly than I'm depending on him in prayer and communing with him. They're not mutually exclusive, but you get my point. I, I'm loving God with my mind, and that's a good thing. We should love God with our minds. But Mary seems to be here saying, Tab, will you love him with your mind, will, and affections? Tab, will you love him with all that you are? Can you relate to me in that? You might ask yourself, if others observe my life, would they observe reflections of Mary in me?
Would they see some family resemblance? And if so, how? Maybe the Holy Spirit is speaking to you right now about extravagant devotion to Christ with your time, perhaps. Maybe something with your time you've, you've held on to, and He's wanted to use you in that time. Maybe the Spirit's speaking to you about some extravagant devotion with your, with your talents, your abilities. And he wants to use you on a ministry team or with a ministry or reaching out to someone. Maybe the Holy Spirit's speaking to you about an extravagant devotion with your treasure, your, your money, your finances. There's something He's been wanting to use you to, to fund for His glory. Or, I thought of this driving over today, or maybe there's some here and you've made such sacrifices or you're making them right now, but you're tempted to think about that sacrifice like the disciples. I think it was a waste. What we did back then. The money I gave back then. The time I invested. I think God would say to you, it's not a waste. <laughs> For Jesus' sake, it's worth it. It's worth it. It's a beautiful thing in His eyes. What you do day to day in service to Him, what you do Monday through Saturday and on Sunday unto Him is a beautiful thing in His eyes. Or I thought as well about the young people here, the youth, the teenagers. Because you're growing up in the, in the church, many of you, and, and there's a danger you face, the danger of, the danger of familiarity. The danger of familiarity. You just have heard this so many times. I wanted to read to you what Pastor Ray Ortland said to his sons. Okay? Track with me. Pastor Ray Ortland to his sons. He wrote, quote, Half-hearted Christians, half-hearted Christians are the most miserable people of all, he said. They know enough about God to feel guilty, but they haven't gone far enough with Christ to be happy. He said to them, be all out for him. I say the same to you, my younger friends here. Can you relate to that? half-hearted and miserable. God wants to take you into happy in Christ. Be all out for Him. Mary is here speaking to you and me on the devotion side. But where does that come from? That's the devotion side of the equation. Where does that come from? You can't just stir that up. It's not going to last. It's not going to be genuine. Where are you going to get that? I want to be more like this monument at the start of the Passion narrative. How can I be like that when it's genuine from the heart? Don't we need to see the other side of the equation? The glory of the sacrifice. Don't we need to see and savor 
and be in awe of and, and wonder and kind of staggered with, with joy at this sacrifice. Think, think about with me maybe two elements of this glorious sacrifice. Think about, think about the who and the why. Briefly, who and the why. You've got to be struck by the, the weaving together of a few different who's. <laughs> You've got human activity with leaders plotting to kill Jesus. Right? Let's get him by stealth. You've got Judas willingly betraying him. How much will you give me for him? 30 pieces of silver? I'll take it. But think about the one who's being betrayed for the price of a slave. He gave sight to the blind, hearing to the deaf, made the lame walk. The paralyzed, because of him, would leap for joy. He even raised the dead. He taught like no one else. He said, the kingdom of God has come among you. Why? Because he's the king. All those miracles were signs. The king himself was walking the earth. The king, the ruler of the cosmos, was there. And to thank him for coming, he's handed over and executed in the most shameful way. I don't think it's an exaggeration to say this has to be the greatest sin imaginable. God in the flesh betrayed, promised Messiah rejected, the king himself executed as a criminal. But none of it some kind of cosmic accident. Not just some cruel twist of fate. Jesus sets the whole thing up in verse 2. He tells them after two days, the Passover is coming. And just let me, let me inform you guys. Okay, spoiler alert, disciples. Spoiler alert. The Son of Man will be delivered up to be crucified. So, no accident, right? So, realize this. God is using the most heinous sins imaginable to accomplish the greatest rescue imaginable. What kind of God does that? What kind of God can do that? He's using responsible, moral agents who are willingly acting and accomplishing what they desire to carry out in the most heinous ways. He's using their responsible, moral actions to accomplish such a great salvation for you and me. Do you see the glory of what's taking place here? God the Son is willingly carrying out the saving purposes of God the Father. Superintending everything here. Jesus going voluntarily out of the Father's love for you and me. God the Father not withholding His own precious Son, but giving Him as a sacrifice for us. There, there is great glory in, in who is accomplishing this sacrifice. And there's great glory in why. In why. Recall, it's, it's the Passover. It's not an accident. It's the Passover time for them. The time when they commemorate as a nation God passing over the people in judgment. We'll see more of this next week. God passed over the people with His judgment. A great picture of what Jesus has done for us. I was in O'Hare Airport with my lovely wife last Monday. 
We're at the security area where you wait forever to go through security. And I see a sign. I don't recall this sign. It has a picture, an image of a tornado. And it said, one word, shelter, as I recall. And an arrow pointing down the down escalator. Tornado, shelter, down. What's it saying? Well, in the Midwest, you have these destructive, terrifying tornadoes sometimes. And if a destructive, terrifying tornado is coming, you want a place of shelter. That that tornado would pass over you. And so you go down the escalator, you get as low as possible, and you take refuge from the wrath of the tornado. That's what Jesus Christ is for you and me. God in His holiness must pour out His wrath on every sin. But he created a refuge. He sent his only begotten son to be a shelter. And this good news of Jesus is a tornado shelter you run to so that the tornado of God's wrath would pass over you if you will believe. That's why that the just, the just judgment of God would just pass over you. And all you'd be struck by is love. All that would hit you would be mercy. All you would know right now is pure grace. Do you see the glory of what's happening here? So what we're doing in our devotion is just reflecting back a teeny, teeny little bit, a little thimbleful of the ocean of love and grace and mercy that has washed over your life and mine in Christ. That's why I say the glory, the glory of the sacrifice for us, it calls for extravagant devotion from us. And I want to end. I want to end by just encouraging you to do one thing mainly. I don't know. I don't know what the Holy Spirit's been speaking to you about. It might look like very different things for each one of us. Or it might look like you being aware of how beautiful some act of devotion is to him that you've already been doing. I, I don't know. But I want to I want to encourage you to do one thing today and, and in these weeks leading up to Easter. And that's pray that the Holy Spirit open your eyes and mine to more and more of the glory of what we're going to see. That just wouldn't be old news. It would be really good news. We would not move on from the good news. We'd move on in the good news. I want to ask you to pray the words of the Apostle Paul in Ephesians chapter 3. Can you show that for me? Ephesians chapter 3. I want to encourage you to pray this prayer in the weeks leading up to Easter. Paul writes, For this reason I bow my knees before the Father, from whom every family in heaven and earth and on earth is named. Notice that according to the riches of His glory, He may grant you. Grant you what? Grant you to be strengthened with power through His Spirit in your inner being 
so that Christ may dwell in your hearts through faith and you would be aware of the indwelling of Jesus Christ by His Spirit. Why? That you being rooted and grounded in love. That's you moving on in the gospel. Rooted and grounding, grounded in love may have strength to comprehend with all the saints, all the saints right here, what is the breadth and length and height and depth, and to know the love of Christ that surpasses knowledge. Did you catch that? To know what surpasses knowledge. To know His love that you may be filled with all the fullness of God. I want to encourage you to pray those words with me regularly these weeks journeying to Easter. Pray that you and I would have the Spirit's ministry of opening our eyes more and more to see more and more glory, to be stunned by this sacrifice and His triumphant resurrection. Never moving on from the gospel, always moving on in the gospel for His glory and our good. Let's pray. Let's pray to that end. And we'll take the Lord's Supper together.